Look around, what do you see? Cars, lots of them. And guess what? They're probably on Auto Trader. Whether you're into timeless classics or the latest trends, did somebody say solar-powered, eco-friendly, vegan, leather-wrapped, aromatherapy-scented, disco ball-equipped, self-driving car? If you see it on the road, you can likely find it on Auto Trader. Big cars, small cars, blue cars, new cars, used cars, electric cars, and one day, maybe even flying cars. With millions of options to choose from, buying a car becomes a whole lot easier. See it. Find it. Auto Trader. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Dave C. is here with us. And this is Stuff You Should Know. That's right. Uh, before we get started, though, we want to quickly plug our friends at Coed because we're trying to get the Stuff You Should Know Army and their donation pool up to $1 million. Yeah. So if you want to go contribute to the Cooperative for Education and their ceaseless march toward breaking the cycle of poverty in Guatemala by making sure that children are able to get to school and stay in school and receive an education, then you can do that because they set up a page just for Stuff You Should Know listeners to go donate so that we can know when we got to a million dollars. Um, and that is cooperativeforeducation.org slash S-Y-S-K. And it's really easy to do and you can contribute as little or as much as you want. And whatever amount you contribute, you have our thanks. That's right. And now on with the spooky show. That's right. So what, what a dish is this, Chuck? The spooky phantom edition. <laughs> That's what Dave thought, but no. And you can understand how you would get that impression from the title, but the phantom of uh, Heilbronn. Heil, sorry. Is it Heil? It is. I just goofed. In German, okay. you, you do the second uh, syllable. Okay. For an E-I. Okay. So Heilbronn. Yeah, Heilbronn. Sorry. Double N at the end. <laughs> yeah. And the phantom of Heilbronn would prove to be essentially what amounts to a criminal mastermind, as far as sure. police were concerned, um, for being able to evade the police for so long despite being so sought after. I mean, like, they made international mm -hmm. news um, this case did. It was that vexing. Yeah. So we love cold cases. We love true crime cases. And this one is, like, really great. Yes. So big thanks to Livia for helping us out with this one. Uh, and she very astutely starts with a, a brief overview of DNA forensics, uh, which mm -hmm. we've covered a lot of times. But um, just as a reminder, this started out uh, DNA forensics and collection and, and using it for uh, criminal cases in the 1980s in the UK. Uh, notably, I think the first case was the exoneration of a 17-year-old uh, suspect in a rape and murder uh, case of two girls. Mm -hmm. um, back then, before they had, uh, this is like pre-DNA database, um, their idea, which, you know, worked pretty well in this case, was to basically do a big genetic sweep 
and ask for 5,000 local men to give up DNA samples of blood or saliva. Uh, and there was a, a local baker there named Colin Pitchfork who told his friend, he's like, hey, mate, would you mind donating your blood for me? <laughs> and his friend, I guess, word got around like, hey, that's a weird thing to do. Uh, someone yeah. overhears this in a pub, and uh, all of a sudden, Colin Pitchfork is, in fact, arrested, and a another gentleman is exonerated. Yeah, through the use of DNA. And it was the guy who actually invented using DNA for forensics, Alec J. Jeffries, who became knighted. And he discovered it by accident. He was trying to find how um, her uh, heritable diseases pass yeah. through families and realized, like, oh, wait, I can actually identify every single participant in this study because of their DNA. And a light bulb went off. And, like, that was— that was an amazing first case. Like, he exonerated somebody who was mm -hmm. innocent and caught the bad guy in the murder and rape of two girls. Like, it doesn't—you can't possibly have a better first outing than that. Um, and, and so, as a result, DNA profiling took off like a rocket, particularly in the U.K. at first, but then it spread very quickly to other European countries and the U.S. And by 1989, the FBI said, hey, all of you um, police departments in the United States, you start sending your, um, your samples into us, we'll create profiles, we'll run them against the database, and we will catch your bad guy for you. So it became much more standardized within three years of that first case. Yeah, and all the private companies who were doing that before the FBI stepped up said, thanks a lot. Yeah, now we're bankrupt. Thanks a lot, FBI. We, we had a pretty good racket going. Uh, but it did needed to be codified, and the database became a very big part of it because, uh, like I said, pre-database, they were doing, uh, and as you'll see in some of these crimes, even with the Phantom, mm -hmm. um, things like genetic sweeps and genetic dragnets and things like that. Yeah, there was another guy who enters the picture in 97. He was from Austria. His name was Roland van Urschot. I think I got it. Um, and he said, hey, you know how we only thought we could get DNA from blood, saliva, or semen? It turns out we leave DNA everywhere. Everything we touch has little bits of um, DNA left behind. Mm -hmm. And here's a way to extract that and, and um, identify it and profile it, basically. Um, and so now all of a sudden, DNA goes from this is a really useful tool, kind of, to we can use this in basically every case we come across. Somebody like um, uh, uh, steals a, a can of Coke out of the uh -huh. honor system Coke machine. <laughs> yeah. You could, you could like, profile their DNA and probably catch them from that. It was like it opened it up that much. <laughs> it sure did. Yeah, it, it stopped. It decreased um, honor system Coke machine crime by, like, 500% almost <laughs> overnight. Uh, th those genetic dragnets uh, were happening more and more, and then they eventually built up the database such where they were less and less necessary, mm -hmm. uh, especially when um, countries started sharing data across their borders, which – uh, here in the United States, we do that in an interstate fashion, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe with Canada and Mexico. I'm not really sure, actually. But if they're lucky, if we're feeling <laughs> like it that day. Uh, and but in Europe, um, this started happening in about 2005 when Germany, Austria, Belgium, France, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands said, uh, and Spain said, "Hey, let's sign this treaty um, that means we can share our our DNA findings with each other." Um, 2007, there was. Uh, basically, all of Europe, all the EU got on board. Uh, and the reason we're talking about the EU is because all of these uh, myriad crimes that this phantom uh, purportedly committed were in Europe and mostly around Germany. 
Yes, and because these crimes were committed after Roland von Urschot's um, discovery that you can get DNA samples from just about anything, um, the European police had become well-versed in lifting DNA from crime scenes. And so they were able to track the who would come to be called the Phantom of Heilbronn um, through the DNA left behind at these crime scenes. And apparently, they were already tracking this person for a few years in a much more isolated way. But the whole thing blew up, and the nickname, the, the Phantom of Heilbronn, all happened in, I think, April of 2007, when a 22-year-old policewoman named Michelle Kaiswetter was murdered while she was taking a lunch break. Can I correct your pronunciation? Uh, yeah. I believe that would be Kaisavetta. <laughs> that's much better. What did I say? Kaisweter? <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. Uh, she was uh, was murdered in cold blood. Uh, she was uh, 22 years old on lunch break with a cop named Martin Arnold. And they were sitting in their patrol car in Heilbronn. And a couple of people jumped in the back seat, shot them from behind. They stole their handcuffs. They stole their guns. Uh, and Kaiser Vetter died. Uh, Martine was only 25 and was in a coma for weeks. And if you read any uh, interviews with Martine Arnold that just like, you know, completely wrecked this guy's life, uh, he lost memory from the point where he parked the car to eat and Man. literally doesn't remember anything else except waking up in the hospital. So all that to say there was no identification of anything. Right. Yeah, I saw that he couldn't. I can imagine if you're in a coma and, until they dislodge a bullet from your brain, you, it's a pretty good bet you're not going to be able to remember yeah. anything. Is he able to remember stuff now, do you know, like from that point on? Yeah, I mean, I think he recovered, but um, it was just, the, you know, one of these sad stories of this young guy who was always wanted to be a cop early on the on the job and, you know, just gets – and this was not a – it's not like this crime happens a lot in the U.S., but it was a very – huge, big deal crime, and it, like, rocked Germany. It was such a big, yes. like, scary thing. Yeah, because Heilbronn is not a huge, bustling metropolis. It's a small town, and the fact that the murder of a cop in a small town in Germany ca caught the entire country's attention and outrage, you know, it does go to show you, like, that's a really big deal yeah. in Germany, or it was at least in 2007. And also, I think the manner of the murder, too, where um, the perpetrator, the criminals— um, got the drop on them so quickly that the, the cops weren't even able to, to like, um, get their weapons out. Yeah. Like, they just completely uh, by surprise. So it was a, an enormous deal, and it turned out that they were able to find some genetic material um, on the rear seat of the car and on the center console of the car. Mm -hmm. And they found something really, really surprising, that um, the only genetic material that they, they could work up a profile from belonged to a woman. And that did not fit the idea of Germans at the time of somebody who would jump in the backseat of a cop car and murder a pair of cops or murder one and try to murder the other one. Yeah, uh, it was it, it was shocking, but it was confusing uh, at the same time. Like no one understood sort of the findings that happened. Yeah. Um, a few months later, uh, they are working with the DNA and they said, hey, wait a minute, these samples match uh, some other crimes that are happening. Um, two other murders in particular. Uh, the first was from 1993. It's a cold case 
this woman, I'm going to say it's Lieselotte Schlanger, uh, was 62 years old, um, again in Germany. And it's about 100 miles west of Heilbronn. And on May 23rd of that year, had put some cakes in the oven. Her neighbor came by to have tea, knocked at the door. No one answered. And it turned out that she had been, uh, Schlinger had been strangled with the wire from a flower bouquet in her sitting room. Uh, yeah. Cops investigated a bunch of witnesses. No one saw anything. No one heard anything. But we have this DNA on the rim of a teacup uh, that matched the DNA from the killer of Michelle Kaisevetta. Yeah, from a 1993 cold case, right? That's right. And then there was another 2001 cold case in the um, murder of a man named Joseph Walsenbach. How's that? That's great. He was an antique dealer, and he too was murdered with a weapon of opportunity, some garden twine that happened to be handy, um, strangled. So both both uh, Lisa Lott and um, Joseph were strangled, um, and he was strangled in his shop, and they, they found DNA on his body, a few items in the shop, and then the back of a clothes sign, which is so creepy that the, they assume that um, the Phantom, who would be, come to be known as the Phantom, put the uh, clothes sign out and left. Um, that's just cold, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. That that's kind like, of calculation? Yeah, that's like a, a movie shot right there. Yeah, it's just scary. So now we have three murders mm-hmm. um, and an attempted murder. Two of the victims were cops. Um, all of them linked to the same woman over the course from 1993 to 2007, all in roughly the same general area of Germany. Yeah, and two of the murders are similar enough in that they were strangled with some kind of wire, and I think both were missing just little amounts of money. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't seem like a, a huge robbery kind of thing, but they were close enough to where there were some similarities to where they said, okay, these make a little bit of sense together. However, uh, except that it was a, a woman who was strangling, which is not common at all. Uh, and then the the cop one, though, that many years later was really kind of threw everyone for a loop. Um, nevertheless, the DNA all matched. And so the media started in with this story. Uh, like you said, the Phantom of Heilbroom or the woman without a face. Yeah. And apparently she'd been known as the woman without a face before when they were tracking those two cold cases that they'd matched the DNA to before. And then with the murder of the police officer, um, she became the Phantom of Heilbronn. Um, So now German um, investigators were like, we have a woman serial killer on our hands who's been active at least since 1993, and no one has seen her. And we need to find this person ASAP because she's now a cop killer. All right. I think it's a great cliffhanger. Yep. Should we take a break? Yep. All right. We'll be right back with more of The Phantom of Heilbronn right after this. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot 
and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Chuck, I have to say, I just want to say this. Um, mm-hmm. There was a part where we were talking about DNA profile sharing that across the EU in 2007. Mm-hmm. They also were sharing license plate information. Yeah. And that occurred to me that the font on those plates was Falsung Schwende Schrift. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just, I spelled it out. I sounded it out. Uh-huh. By God, I was going to say it in this episode, nice. come hell or high water. <laughs> Good job. Thanks. Um, all right. So where we last left you was there is the murder of a police officer, the serious wounding of another, and then two cold cases from many years before, all tied to the same DNA of what they know is a woman. Um, all of a sudden, they start matching this DNA with these, uh, you know, people start sharing databases and crime um, particulars around mm-hmm. the EU. And they said, mm-hmm. wait a minute. This person's DNA is everywhere. There's and, and it's not murders. There are uh, a dozen break-ins, and there are car thefts in Austria and in France and in Germany. And there's a break-in in an office in Germany. There's a burglary in Mainz, Germany. The the gas cap of a car 
that was stolen had this DNA on it in 2003. There was a toy pistol used in a robbery in France with this DNA on it. And everyone is like, that's why this name Phantom of Heilbronn like locked in so much because all of a sudden, like you could go on for an hour listing the crimes that this DNA was found at. Yeah, so we've got a, a female serial killer in Germany who also appears to have a taste for just common crimes as well. So much so that it seemed like she may have been more of a um, like a burglar or a robber mm-hmm. who was totally fine with murder, but didn't need to murder all the time. Right. Um, more than a serial killer that liked to engage in petty crime. And one of those, I just have to say, one of those um, burglaries, a break-in at an office in Dietzenbach mm-hmm. on New Year's Day 2003, one of the prosecutors in this case who was tracking uh, the phantom named Gunter Horn said that this was a professional job. It's a yeah. quote. But it was the theft of a can of loose change. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of hilarious that he's like, yeah. this person's evading us. It's a professional job, no matter what she's doing, even if she's stealing loose change in a coffee can from an office. doesn't matter. She's pro. Well, I mean, that's the kind of interesting thing about this case, I think, is once you have this DNA at all these crimes, mm-hmm. your your cop uh, masterminds are going to start trying to piece together. And they did in this case, like, you, we got to profile this person and what kind of a person would – I don't think we mentioned that was also the DNA was found on a heroin needle. Yeah, that was a big turning point too. That a seven-year-old stepped on in Germany, and his parents said, hey, can you investigate this? My kid stepped on this needle. They mm-hmm. swabbed it and found that DNA. So all of a sudden this profile is like, this is a drug user. Maybe she right. steals – little bits to to fund the drug habit. And maybe, like you said, the murders just happen out of necessity uh, because of these petty crimes. So kind of the point is, like, once you've got all these weird, disparate crimes, um, you're still going to have cops that are trying to tie them to a single sort of brain. Right. They were just trying to figure out who they were after, basically. Um, So, yeah, that heroin syringe from 2001 really kind of explained things like the coffee cane of loose change, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, those kind of robberies and break-ins. And then there was another thing that kind of added to the puzzle uh, as they were on her trail. Um, In 2005, in Worms, in Germany, um, a a Roma man shot his brother. And so the police were were, um, uh, getting stuff from the crime scene. What's it called? Mm, They were collecting evidence. Yeah. From the crime scene, and um, the DNA they found on one of the bullets was the phantoms. So now they're like, okay, this kind of explains how she's making her way back and forth around the EU in France, Germany, um, Austria. She's she's basically hooked up with the Roma community, if not Roma herself. Um, and then there was one other thing, too. Um, she had accomplices in some of these crimes, and they were – none of them would say a word about her. They all clammed up whenever the cops went to them and said, hey, you know this crime you got busted for? We just found out that you had an accomplice. They would just not – they just stopped talking. Yeah. And uh, I think one – I think it was the – Gunter Horn talked about the fact that – I think his frustration and police's general frustration – that even after these people are behind bars, they're still not talking and they're not saying anything. Right. So they basically said what we kind of did was basically wait for reports to come in with this DNA turning up again. 
Yep. And then we would have a new lead. And between, I think, uh, 2007, uh, summer 2007 and spring 2008, mm-hmm. um, there were like garden shed break-ins. Sometimes food and drink was stolen. Um, nothing real big happened. Uh, but again, lots of more crimes start trickling in. Um, and they think also like that those garden shed break-ins, that she was spending the night in those garden sheds. So that would suggest also that she was aware she's being hunted and on the run. Yes, look right there. You can see a depression in the haystack. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so there was another one too. I believe this was the last crime they um, they. Yeah, I think it was the last crime. No, it wasn't. There was another crime. It was a little odd. Um, it was. It took place in near the Luxembourg border, where a woman who was the manager of the cleaning staff at a fishing lodge, someone snuck up behind her, hit her on the head hard, and made off with three hundred euros that I guess she had on her. And when they um, they did they collected evidence in the room at that fishing lodge, they found the phantom's DNA there. Now, I, I, from what I saw, it wasn't on the woman. Uh, or uh, any weapon or anything like that, just in the room. Mm-hmm. So they didn't know whether she had been there before or whether she was involved in this. But either way, they were like, okay, now she's over by Luxembourg too. I flew out of Luxembourg once. Oh, yeah? How, how was the airport? I threw up in a trash can at the airport. Sweet. Long story. Does it have to do with rope trauma? <laughs> no, now we have two mysteries. I almost got you. Um, so the biggest... M- Crime, aside from that initial uh, police murder uh, in these cold cases, came in 2008 with uh, a triple murder. Mm-hmm. This was in January 2008. The bodies of three used car dealers uh, from Georgia, uh, European Georgia, not here, were found in the Rhine River in Germany. And two men were arrested, uh, a 40-year-old Iraqi and 26-year-old Somalian citizen. So they looked at these guys and said, we know what happened. Um, these car dealers were in town uh, getting cars to sell back home, and they had a lot of cash on them, so you mm-hmm. murder them for their money. Uh, they searched the one suspect, uh, the Iraqi suspect, and they found traces of, you guessed it, the Phantom of Heilbronn uh, DNA was in that car. Yeah. Police questioned the guy, and... Again, he's not talking. He has no nothing to say to the police about who this uh, mystery woman is. Yep. So now she's shown that she's capable of, if not participating in, at least presiding over triple homicides. That is, not that many people are capable of triple homicides, you know? But it's also kind of not surprising if you look at her past that she's also willing to get up and close and personal and strangle elderly citizens with garden twine. So it's not that big of a shock, but it's a it's a it's a big addition to the yeah. profile of of her that the police are coming up with, and so um, they started to put all this stuff together. Like the the syringe suggested that she used drugs, and you know some of the pettier crimes suggested that she was committing them to probably get drugs. Um, she generally stuck around southwestern Germany, but she also was capable of moving over to Austria and France. And so they they said her connection with the Roma probably helped her do that. Um, so they were putting this together and they still weren't finding anybody. No one was emerging. Like she just kept eluding them crime after crime after crime. And one of the big problems was is there was 
either no eyewitnesses to the crime or no eyewitnesses saw her. And then one day, one day, there was a uh, attempted break-in in Saarbrücken in 2006. By the way, I'm expecting you to be like, you're way off if I'm way off. And if you say nothing, then I nailed it. That's how I'm taking these. Correct. Okay. And in Saarbrücken, uh, the, somebody saw the person attempting to, to break in. And in that break-in attempt, they found the phantom's DNA. But the puzzler was that the the person, the eyewitness who saw the attempted burglar s- described a man with a soul patch, even a terrible, terrible soul patch. And this added a whole nother twist to the mystery. And one interesting thing notably, though, is none of the crimes, even though there were crimes committed all over this area, none of them happened in Bavaria, which is a little unusual because it's right there. But just put a pin in that one. Which suggested then to the cops that it is possible that the phantom, who they knew to have the sex of a, a female, but had a soul patch conceivably, may have actually been a transgender man. So they added that to the profile as well. That's right, which I'm sure, you know, added a whole other layer for them. Right. Uh, another layer that was added that we should mention was that uh, Germany had, I guess you could call a very, um, I guess to put it kindly, rocky historical record of identifying races and ethnicities as a country. Yeah. Um, so because of that, there were pretty strict laws on how Germany could use DNA and how much insight they could get from it. So in other words, an investigator uh, in Germany was not allowed to determine race or ethnicity or hair or eye color using DNA. Um, it was possible in Austria, so uh, they were a little less strict there at the time, and they were able to take a closer look at this DNA and say, hey, we think, we can't be sure because it's 2000, what year was this, seven or eight? Yeah. Uh, we're pretty sure, though, that this woman probably has blonde hair and blue eyes, um, so we got that going for us. Yeah, but they also said in some interviews that they're like, that's, I mean, we're talking about Germany for one, but also they said that they, it was 80% accurate. So the margin of error left the possibility of um, falsely arresting hundreds of thousands of Germans. So yeah. they essentially, they might as well have not had any idea what her hair eye color was. Yeah. Again, this is the early days of DNA, um, such that they also did a DNA dragnet. Uh, this is pretty pretty big long shot, but they did yeah. uh, saliva swab of about 3,000 women in uh, Belgium, France, and southern Germany and Italy. Uh, they focused on drug users, uh, unhoused women, uh, women with criminal records that were pretty serious. They offered up big-time money. Uh, yeah. I believe it got up to about 300,000 euros. A uh, lot of dough, um, but you know nothing was helping out. And in total, I think they ended up spending uh, what they guessed to be about 16,000 hours of police overtime uh, pursuing the phantom of Heilbronn. And yet she kept eluding him, Chuck. And I say that we take our second break and come back and talk about how she was finally apprehended. Let's do it. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so now we're in March 2009. Um, this is uh, finally the case that kind of breaks things wide open uh, for the Phantom of Heilbronn when police were uh, investigating the death of a, of a man who died in a fire and thought maybe he was an asylum seeker who had disappeared years before. And so they were trying to find out if this was the same, the, the burned body that they found was the same as this asylum seeker. They tested a card where they know that this asylum seeker had given fingerprints. Like, mm -hmm. here is my fingerprint, DNA, <laughs> right here, and it matched the phantom. And they said, well, that – all right, I know this phantom matches have been crazy, but this is literally impossible. Yeah. We know who this man was, and it is a man. It is not a, a woman who had committed these crimes. So they said, let's retest it, and the DNA has disappeared from the card – and then everyone went, well, what in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? <laughs> right. And before they could answer that question, a German magazine named Stern 
came out and said, um, guys, there is no Phantom of Heilbronn. What? Yeah. They've been chasing false positives from DNA matches, likely from contaminated equipment or swabs. Right. And what they realized they had literally been tracking were cotton swabs. They had been tracking the DNA of a woman who worked in a cotton swab factory that they used to um, take DNA samples from. That was the Phantom of Heilbronn was a, uh, I think, a 71-year-old Polish grandmother who worked in the, the factory of the cotton swab maker. Yeah, so I tried to find out who she was specifically. I couldn't. And I also found that it was there were quite a few uh, older Polish women. I guess that kind of thing happens sometimes mm-hmm. where you hire a bunch of people out from an area. So it could have possibly been from other women in that same area who worked at the factory because I couldn't find her actual name. Did you? Not that it matters. Uh, I feel like I did see it somewhere in one of the articles. Okay. I didn't know if they tried to grant her an uh, an anonymity. <laughs> wow. I don't I I swear I I swear I I saw it. I'm almost okay. positive. Because I could see why they'd be yeah, they'd make her anonymous, but then in, in retrospect, she didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't her. Sure. But just um, to as, avoid people from bothering this old lady. Sure. But as a matter of fact, the cops, the first thing the cops did was throw the maker of these cotton swabs right under the bus. Because as you can imagine, everybody, the Phantom of Heilbronn, this internationally described criminal that Mm -hmm. the cops have been after for years, that the Heilbronn police alone spent 16,000 overtime hours trying to catch— didn't exist. There was no phantom. It was such egg on the cops' faces that you they're still peeling it off. And so, of course, they said, this is the manufacturer's fault. What the hay is going on? Why is there other people's DNA on these cotton swabs when you're double double packaging them? We considered these, one, one cop said, the Mercedes of cotton swabs. And the manufacturer's like, well, we never said you could use them for DNA collection. Yeah, they fired back pretty quickly and said, these are for testing food, guys, or medical testing, hygienic tests, like definitely not collecting DNA. Um, but it, I don't think we mentioned either, before this even happened, as soon as it sort of came out from Stern, the magazine, mm-hmm. uh, there were investigators that said sort of on the down low for at least six months We've been kind of wondering and investigating whether or not this could have been a contaminated evidence case. Yeah, and the uh, other investigators were like, well, thank you right. for even mentioning that to us. <laughs> they kept that pretty quiet, though. Um, to put a, a button on the Bavarian thing is Bavaria did not source their swabs from this company. So that mm. explains why there was never any DNA, even though Bavaria is right there where all these crimes were happening. Yeah, and the company was Griner Bio One International AG. And the thing that, that claimed that they were like, well, we never said this is for DNA collection. It's for like food sa- food stuff sampling and stuff like that. Um, the cops were like, well, then why have you been selling them to right. police departments all over Austria and Germany? Um, you know, what's, what, <laughs> what did you think we were using them for? Yeah. And the company was just like, yoink, I'm out. Hey, the money like spends a, the same, you know? <laughs> yeah, there was a, a, a um, PR spokesperson-shaped dust cloud just left at the podium, <laughs> and that was it. Well, they were like, I thought you were testing your uh, give a Coke, take a Coke. Thing <laughs> right. in your offices, your honor, your Coke machine yeah, honor your system. Honor system. 
All right. So I guess uh, we should talk a little bit about what this what happened because of this. Yeah. Um, it was, like you said, a big humiliation for the German police. Um, it was also a, a bit of a hit on DNA sampling. Um, you know, we've co- talked about DNA a lot over the years, and DNA is great and collection of DNA for exoneration and for for proving someone is guilty is is amazing and it's really come a long way. But DNA has always sort of giveth and taketh away in certain cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not perfect, uh, like Livia says. It's not a silver bullet, and I think it was sort of has always kind of been painted that way. Um, especially for juries or like, you know, when they see DNA evidence, I think the first thing you think is that's like as ironclad as it gets. Yeah. And that's not necessarily always the case. No. And as a matter of fact, if you zoom out a couple of orders of magnitude and look at this case, the Phantom of Heilbronn case needed to happen. Yeah, for sure. Because people were being convicted on circumstantial DNA evidence alone. Mm -hmm. Like their DNA had been found at the scene, not on the murder weapon, not on the body, just at the scene. And people were going to prison for that kind of stuff because judges, juries, Prosecutors saw DNA as, like, infallible, basically. If your DNA was there, you were guilty, essentially. So the Phantom of Heilbronn case really slowed that down. And like you said, it didn't say D- there's D- there's a lot wrong with DNA uh, in using that for forensics. It's, hey, this is a really good way to, to um, come up with evidence, but you need to also do the old-fashioned police work. Yeah to fill it out, to make sure you have the right person. So it just kind of slowed everybody down and, like, I, it was, I think it was really necessary because this was, like, the time when CSI was at its peak. Yeah. That TV show was huge, at, like, in 2008. Um, and, and, like, that, had, that was because everybody thought of DNA in that way. So it was good it happened, in, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was one case, if you want to get specific, uh, from 2011 that uh, Olivia dug up for us where there was an English cab driver whose DNA was discovered uh, from the fingernails of a murdered woman. And, you know, a jury hears that and they're like, fingernails? Like, of course he did it because she was yeah. fighting him off and got his DNA under her fingernails. Uh, but it was uh, someone who rode in his cab and got a little bit of that DNA on him, killed this woman and got that DNA on her. Yep. Uh, and I believe the cabbie spent eight months in jail before they found out the truth and acquitted him. So uh, That's a tough one, though. Well, sure. I mean, that's an outlier, but yeah. uh, it's just a good example of of how it needs you need to tread a little lighter, I think. One of the other things, though, is it's not like this should have been a surprise for everybody um, that DNA w- wasn't infallible. Because back in 1997, our friend Orshut, Orshot, uh, mm-hmm. The guy who said, hey, you can get DNA off of everything. His his research also showed you can also really, really easily contaminate anything with DNA. So we should all be very careful. Everybody's like, all we heard was we can get DNA samples off of anything. Yeah, there's like, we didn't hear all that. We weren't within Orshot. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that was amazing, Chuck. Holy oh, cow. Oh, boy. I'm I so hate ashamed. puns, but that was, <laughs> that filled my heart. I'm very ashamed. So there was a there's an international standard, the International Organization for Standardization, I should say, an international organization. Um, they published a new standard called ISO one eight three eight five that basically says this is how you um, collect forensic evidence with DNA to minimize 
um, contamination, that yeah. kind of stuff. And I read a forensic blog um, who was who said, were these were the the DNA analysts not even doing control samples? And I went and looked it up. And a control sample is one of the most basic things you can do. Yeah. Where you take your cotton swab that has like say a blood stain on it, and you pull off a little bit of the cotton swab that's not stained, and you test them both to mm. make sure that the cotton swab that's not stained doesn't come back with any genetic material. If it does, so your sample is compromised. And they weren't doing that, apparently, or else they would have figured this out almost immediately. So they were not doing very basic stuff, and maybe it's because it hadn't been standardized, like this is what you're supposed to do by that time. But, you know, in 2016, finally, they got around to saying, here's how you do it right. It's like when you put on a Band-Aid, you take off the peely part, right, and you hold it by the sticky part. You don't hold it by the bandage. Right. And then you take a sample of the bandage, and then you run it through your DNA profiling machine. Sure. So, and there's actually, those things exist now. There's something called rapid DNA machines. Yeah, 90 minutes. Um, yeah, because DNA's not going anywhere, nor should it. Uh, you can look no further than the Golden State Killer case, yeah. where they actually caught the serial killer who killed, like, scores of people or raped scores of women and killed, I think, a dozen or more people um, just through his DNA. They found it through, like, a genetic genealogy site. Yeah. Um, they, they discovered this guy. So, yeah, you don't actually want to get rid of DNA. But what seems to be problematic is we're going a different way where now police stations have these rapid DNA machines where you just throw a cotton swab in and it spits out a genetic profile that you can run in CODIS. But that you're taking the professional mm -hmm. analyst out of the out of the equation and that seems dangerous to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to button up the original case that sort of got this all started, which was the murder of Officer Michel Kaisavetta, um, it was Nazis. Uh, what they found out, it was uh, a very small terrorist cell of just three people, the National Socialist Underground, mm -hmm. uh, and they were tied to the larger Nazi movement, but they carried out a series of murders uh, throughout Germany from 1999 to 2007. And uh, all, except for the officers, all the other victims were immigrants, uh, one Greek citizen and eight of Turkish origin. And it was two members of that group, uh, Uwe Mundlos and Uwe uh, Bernhardt. The two Uwe's. The two Uwe's. They robbed a bank um, in Eisenhagen, Germany. They were spotted. Um, and this was after, after the murder. This is in 2011. Yeah. And how they got caught. Well, not quite caught. But uh, they were spotted. And as police approached their uh, burned-out caravan where they were hiding out, uh, Mundlos killed Bernhardt and then himself. And what looked like a murder-suicide, uh, even though I think Bernhardt's last words were, whoa, 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 hold on. <laughs> oh, man. That's dark. That's dark. But these are Nazis. But they also they, they um, linked these guys to her murder um, directly using DNA analysis. They found sweatpants that had been stained with blood that matched Kaiser DNA. And that that's, that's kind of neat how it came full circle like that. But at the same time, it also strongly suggests that these guys were wearing sweatpants with a, a, the policewoman's blood on them for three years. That's how yeah. gross these stupid Nazis were. Yeah. And it, you know what's even funnier is I believe it's Kiesewetter after I had my whole thing at the beginning about the I and the E in German. Ooh, Kiesewetter is even better. Yeah. I think I screwed up the whole thing. Should we just well, re-record it all? Sure. Let's start from the beginning.
So there were two other outcomes from this. One was, hey, you guys um, ignored the murder of eight Turks and one Greek citizen. Yeah. Um, but yet you spent 16,000 overtime hours chasing the phantom. Yeah. How does that work? Why are you doing that? And then also it really showed and revealed just how much um, investigators will bend and shape their theories into these yeah. really weird, ridiculous shapes just to make it fit the DNA evidence rather than stopping yeah. and being like, wait, what? What is this again? This doesn't make any sense. Are we, do we have the right, are we on the right track? Yeah, totally. So that's it, everybody. Good that's one. the Phantom of Heilbronn. It was a good one. I, that's a, an amazing story. Uh, and if you want to know more about the Phantom of Heilbronn, you can search that on your favorite search engine and jump down that rabbit hole. And since I said rabbit hole, as always, that means it's time for listener mail. Uh, this is a very kind of cool little addendum from Eve in Libertyville, Illinois. Hey, guys, I was listening to the Selects episode on Invasive Species. And one of you kind of joked that it'd be crazy to shoot invasive plants to eliminate them. Uh, I know it's been years since that episode, but get this. I recently watched a nature documentary, uh, Green Planet with David Attenborough, which is awesome. Mm. And there's a section on shooting invasive plants. No. Uh, in Maui, there's an invasive plant called the Myconia that's native to Mexico. And sharpshooters and helicopters are being used to shoot the plants growing on steep hillsides with herbicides. <laughs> And without affecting the entire ecosystem. Just another example of creative ways people have found to fight invasive species. I attached a link. Thanks for all you do. Eve in Libertyville, Illinois. Amazing. Thanks, Eve. Did we did we create that, Chuck? Did we cause that? Yeah, I don't know. Let's say we did. Okay. Between you, me, and Eve, we, we did. We came up with that. I know I got Jared of Subway arrested. Yeah, you did. <laughs> and boy, did I misjudge him. Uh, so... That was from Eve. Eve. Eve, thanks a lot for that one. We always love hearing new facts about old episodes. And you can send us a, an email like Eve did to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.